Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Midweeks. We are in the final approach on 2 Samuel. We're in chapter 21. And as I read this, this, this section here, these last few chapters, are a bit of a separate unit from the overall story. Now, it may be that this story of famine that we're about to read is did happen right after the Civil War was brought to a conclusion. But there are structural um, clues that these final chapters are meant to be seen as a unit and possibly as not within the historical flow. What I mean by that is they may be pulling s- stories from earlier than after the battle with Absalom and putting it together as more of a thematic presentation or a theological presentation to wrap up the life of David. And the structure that I'm talking about is the fact that what you have here is you have a story about the Lord being upset with David about something, followed by some uh, stories about the exploits of David and his mighty men. We're going to read both of those today in chapter 21. And then in chapter 22, we go into a psalm. And there's actually two songs of David. There's a psalm and then there's another shorter psalm. It's like final words. And then we go into the list of David's mighty men. And then we go into a final story of a time when God was angry with David because he tried to number the people of Israel. So you have what's called a chiasm where there's balance and parallel and it goes in reverse order. So it starts with problem, then it goes to mighty men, then it goes to psalm. And then it goes in the reverse order, Psalm, and then mighty men, and then a problem with David and the Lord. And you have this balance by having um, an order. And when people talk about it, they often say like A, B, C, and then it goes backwards, C, B, A. And so by having the stories united in this kind of order like this, it's setting these stories somewhat apart from everything that came before it. And it's Um, a stylistic thing and we're meant to be sensitive to these things so that we can hear deeper how God is thinking or how the prophets are thinking and thus the Holy Spirit as they're putting this together and so um, really you you almost have this like interesting sandwich where it goes to like um, David needing grace from the Lord because of Saul what Saul did we're going to see this and then God being with David and his men to rescue Israel, and then David being a man of prayer and worship, this this psalm-singing king, and then more of God's faithfulness to David through the exploits of his mighty men, followed by David needing mercy because of something he did. And so there's this theology of the kingship where the best king is a worshiping king. That's the heart of it. The best king is a king who comes to God in worship and prayer, and God provides a victory and and w- victory in war, mighty warriors. But the kings are still fallen and they need grace. Both the first king Saul and the great king David both needed mercy from the Lord. So that's how I would read it, but you can read it your own way too. It's not hard and fast. We're meant to look and see the, about see these things and think about them, but it's more of an art than a science. Anyhow, let's start in 2 Samuel 21. Now, this is the story of David having having to deal with a problem that a king of Israel made, but it's not his problem. It's something Saul did, but David has to deal with it. Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. So that's a big deal. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. 
So the Gibeonites, if you remember from the book of Joshua, they are a uh, Canaanite people, but when they saw how the Lord was with Joshua and everyone was being destroyed, they tricked the Israelites into making a covenant with them. They came and pretended to be from far away and asked for a covenant and Joshua didn't pray about it and they made the covenant then they found out that the Gibeonites are actually neighbors so they honored the covenant not to put the Gibeonites to death so there's kind of a faith amongst the Gibeonites they believed in God's promises to Israel to take out the Canaanites and they used shrewd behavior to save their lives and I even though you know it's complicated. It's kind of this weird act of faith that they're like, ah, they really did believe in the God of Israel. And they didn't come to him in faith like Rahab did, but they had kind of like a half faith. They had enough faith in the God of Israel to try to not be destroyed by him. Anyhow, um, there's an issue because it looks like Saul wanted to put the Gibeonites to death and was slaughtering them. And I don't believe that this story is captured in the books of First and Second Samuel. At least I went looking for it and couldn't see it. But we're finding out that Saul did this there. So um, let's read this a bit farther. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, this is what I was talking about, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. Okay, so here's the whole story. Saul was looking for some way to impress um, the people of Israel and Judah, and he thought, I'll take out these Gibeonites, even though they had made this covenant not to do it. And so this is a, a good example of zeal without knowledge is not good, is dangerous. Um, so, and as I did do a little bit of research, it looks like the Gibeonites may have been neighbors of where Saul lived. Um, very often the word Gibeon comes up as like Gibeon of Saul or lots of stuff happened there. And in fact, in our stories, lots of Joab's betrayals happened in Gibeonite territory when uh, Joab killed Abner and Amasa, you know, these people who threatened his position in the kingdom. Those both happened in the Gibeonite territory. So um, that's where we hear of it. There's lots of bad things happen and betrayals happen revolving um, the Gibeonites. And maybe there's some kind of like spiritual theme there because the Gibeonites um, tricked Israel into this covenant. And so there's betrayal and trickery and backstabbing that happens in this territory. I don't know. You don't want to push things too far. Anyhow, David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and how shall I make atonement, that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us or and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? And they said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us, so that we should have no place in all the terror of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. So this is where I'm not sure if they're neighbors. Gibeah is where the Gibeonites are from. So is there a separate Gibeah of Saul that's in the land of Benjamin and then a separate, separate Gibeonite territory? Or are these people somewhat neighbors? And Saul was actually trying to wipe out his own neighbors in all of this stuff. So I'm not totally sure, but you can see that there it seems like there's some stuff going on here. Now, I'm not sure about the Gibeonites' reply. It seems a little mixed. They're saying like, you know, it's not for us to put anyone to death, but David pushes them. Well, what do you want me to do? And they say, well, we do want to put some people to death. We're going to hang them before the Lord. And so 
this this is a bit morally gray or ambiguous because the Lord's law does say that you're not supposed to put the sons to death for the sins of the father. And David didn't do that. Remember when he became king, he didn't put um, the sons of Saul to death. He didn't wipe out all the people of Saul. And that did cause him some trouble. Remember, Shimei later on was from the household of Saul and joined in with uh, assaulting David during the conspiracy. But David didn't do that. But here the Gibeonites want to do that. So even though they're taking, they're saying we want to hang them before the Lord, and that can sound a bit like pious, um, I, this isn't the best. And the king goes along with it because there is blood guilt. But this is, this is a morally like, yeah, kind of situation. Verse 7, but the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. Okay, so the Gabionites had an oath that they wouldn't be killed. Saul broke that oath in trying to wipe them out. Um, now Saul's sons are going to be handed over, but David is sparing Mephibosheth because of the oath he made to Mephibosheth. So even oath-keeping and faithfulness is a part of this whole story. Verse 8. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahalanite. Um, oh man, so this is a bit confusing as well. So Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth, but also Saul had a son named Mephibosheth, which isn't too crazy i mean how many people named john do you know but um just to be careful there they're trying to explain that it's david didn't break his covenant with saul with the fact that someone named mephibosheth was handed over here and i'm not sure if that barzillai um is the same person we met earlier that'd be something for you to research Verse 9, he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now remember, the harvest has not been going well because of this blood guilt that's in the land that the Lord uh, wants to deal with. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on a rock from the beginning of the harvest until the rain fell upon them from the heavens and she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night and when david was told that rizpah the daughter of Aya, the concubine of saul had what had done what she had done david went and took the bones of saul and the bones of his son jonathan from the men of jabesh gilead who had stolen them from the public square of beth shan where the philistines had hanged them on the day of the philistines killed saul in gilboa and he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his sons, Jonathan, in the land of Benjamin in Zela, in the tomb of Kish his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. All right, so here's Rizpah. Um, obviously devastated by this vengeance on the half of the people of Gibeon. And she goes and for quite some time, this would be many weeks, if not months, she's there trying to honor the dead by not allowing her sons to be uh, devoured by the beasts at night. And it's quite an act of desperation, but it's also an act of loyalty to the dead. That's what's going on here. And so David hears about this, and he takes it a step further. He gathers the bones of Saul and Jonathan, which had been rescued from the enemies of God and the enemies of Israel, excuse me, who had uh, killed them. And he wants to 
honor the dead by not just having them at Jabeth Gilead, but bringing them all the way home to the land of Benjamin. And he also brings the bones of the people who were hanged, and he gives them a proper burial. So, and at that point, um, God responds to prayer, meaning that the famine is ended. And so it's when all of the dead have some kind of justice or honor brought to them, both the people of Gibeon as well as Saul's family, um, that this is all cured. And so there, there's a bit of a theme for the honoring of the dead and trying to bring about some um, healing from wrong as well as honor, even to those who wronged, but... Uh, honoring the dead is going on here and God shows that he's accepted these acts of chesed these are acts of chesed and justice by returning um, returning food to Israel so complicated but you can see that there's some themes that have been in the book previously that are brought up again here all right so we're going to transition out of that story of um, God trying to bring about justice for a king's failure, for Saul's failure and his sins during his reign. And now we're going to move to some stories about the warriors. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines, and David grew weary. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. So, there's going to be a little bit more, but I just want to say here. So, this could be after the the Absalom stuff, because David is weary. He, so, he's getting older. The, just his ability to go out to battle is um, compromised and the men can see it and so now they say you can't go to battle with us but also when the whole thing with Absalom was happening remember they didn't let David go to battle there either so we're not I'm not exactly sure when this happened uh, but when Kings picks up in the next story David is, is well advanced in years and he can't go out and be the king anymore and that's part of the problem but so this story is from later in David's career for sure not sure exactly when definitely could fit with being after the whole Absalom stuff but because it's these stories are taken out of the flow of the narrative um, I'm not exactly sure and that's fine this is like a portrait more than meant to be just pure like um, like the newspaper one day after the next after this there was again war with the Philistines at Gob then Sebekai the Hushethite struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants, and there was war, again war, with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Jar Aragim, excuse me, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite. The shaft of whose spear was like the weaver's beam, which usually means that it was like long and knotted for, um, for grip. It would have had things around it for grip. And there was again war with Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot and 24 number and he also was descended from the giants and when he taunted israel jonathan the son of shimei david's brother struck him down these four were descended from the giants in gath and they fell by the hand of david and by the hand of his servants so as you can kind of tell um the theme here is like killing giants or did the descendants of the giants now what does this mean like 
David was a Goliath the Gittite his name comes here there's a bit of a hint remember when David met Goliath the Philistine the first time um, he also had a spear whose shaft was like a weaver's beam so you've got these stories of Israel defeating giants and remember when Israel's first coming into the promised land the spies were afraid because there were giants in the land and so here you have just this collection of testimonies of God's faithfulness to Israel by raising up giant killers. First David, but he's kind of getting older, and then other people as well. So you have this testimony of David's mighty men striking down the giants. And so this is a hopeful thing, that the king's role of being a defender of Israel was in effect through the Lord, through these people who God raised up to be giant killers. And this is, I think, meant to be a testimony of God's greatness expressed through successful warriors who fought against the enemies of Israel and defeated even giants. And so um, that's what I think is going on here. And this wraps up this part of the chapter. And so there we go. I think that this chapter works together with the chapters following as a bit of a unit. And maybe you do think that this is just a strictly narrative flow, and it could be. But I think that the, there's more themes deciding what happens where here, and you have this story of um, a King Sin needing to have reconciliation, followed by um, God working through mighty warriors to defend Israel, and you're going to see these themes picked up again a few chapters later. But for now, let's press pause and enjoy your day. God bless.